Our text is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. We've been going through uh, 2 Peter, the first chapter here, and we're going to be finishing it today, and then I'm going to go away from it till sometime in January, because we do a lot of the Christmas things and so forth here. And so uh, we will get back to that, but I wanted to finish out the chapter and not try to find where we are, because it seems like that when we get to chapter uh, 2, it's building up to something else here. So as we look at our text, verse 16, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory, when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard, and when we were there with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well to take heed as unto a light in a, that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now shall we pray. <clears throat> Father, I pray now that as we go into this message, the importance here, Lord, that we see of an experience that Peter and James and John had with Jesus Christ and then seeing something even more important than that experience. And so, Lord, we want to find out why today, and I pray that the Holy Ghost will just make it clear to everyone under the sound of my voice of why this is important. I pray that there's one that is unsaved, one that does not know that if they die today, that heaven's their home, that before this day is out, they will have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Now, as we... uh, Look back here again to our text. I want you to see the attack of the devil, the world, and the flesh will begin unfolding when we get to chapter 2. And that's another reason I wanted to finish chapter 1. Because in chapter 1, this first chapter, it's trying to prepare a believer for it, much like guys going to war go through a boot camp. They go through camp, they go through the training to get ready for the war. And chapter 1 is kind of the boot camp for the Christian. He's taken us through getting us ready for what's coming up in chapters 2 and 3, preparing for it. So we started out in this chapter. We found out that Peter was saved the same way any of us are saved. That is by the grace of God. You don't get saved any differently than anybody else. We're all saved the same way. It's through the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross for every sin you ever committed, I ever committed, 
and anybody in this auditorium ever committed, anyone understanding my voice uh, committed, anybody in this world committed. And anybody alive on the face of this earth right now was not living 2,000 years ago when he died for them, but he took all your sin even back then on his cross, even the sins I've yet to commit. It was on him. He did a work that you and I cannot do. We could not pay for our sin. He did it back then. So our part, as we often say, is repentance and faith. Now, you say, what do you mean by repentance and faith? Well, repentance and faith is not a work. But the Bible tells us I was conceived in sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And on we can go, letting each of us know that each of us are sinners. We're born to this world with that old sin nature headed to the eternal lake of fire. That is the truth as it is. When I'm repenting, I'm saying, I know I'm a sinner I know that I can't even take my sin away. So in repentance, I've got to turn to Jesus Christ to take my sin from me. I've got to turn to him to cleanse me by his blood. For it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So I've got to turn to Jesus Christ for that sin-cleansing flow of the blood of Jesus Christ. I've got to turn to him realizing he is going to take my sin away. Now, if I don't want him to take my sin away, I'm not repenting. But I'm not going to take my sin away. He's going to take it away. Now that I won't get in trouble until I get to heaven, I'm going to tell this story. Okay. My mom and dad both, when they got saved, were smokers. Dad knew that when he got saved, got to quit smoking. And then he told my mom, we've got to quit smoking. Dad put him down right away, didn't have any problem with it. Mom had a harder problem with it. And every once in a while, he'd walk back in the house after work and, all right, you've been smoking again. Sometimes he'd get home early and see that she was outside smoking, trying to get away with it, okay? But it was harder for her, but God took the sin from her, Okay? He took the sin from her, but it was harder for her because when we get saved, we still have that old nature still in us and the world tries to allure us back to it. But we've got a savior who is stronger than the world. So we commit ourselves to him. All right. So again, he did all the work. Our responsibility is repentance towards God for all sin is in faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. That is Jesus Christ's payment on the cross took care of everything. And so we're trusting our eternity on what Jesus Christ did for us. In his shed blood, dying for our sin, raising from the dead, and coming again. God come the flesh, believing that, believing all of that, knowing that he is our God. We're saved the same way Peter was saved. Now, Our personal responsibility was faith to begin. But after you're saved, faith doesn't just stand there. Now it needs to grow. 
And there are things that you need to add to your faith. And in verses 5 through 7, we saw a personal responsibility to add to this faith. A, a list of, uh, of good godly ethics that should be manifested in the Christian life. Not only added to our lives, but developed and growing daily. Our faith should be stronger now than it was when we first got saved. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. And when we live by faith, when we live by this blessed Word of God, the, there's great benefits in the Word of God, allowing these things to be manifest in our lives. If we don't allow them as Christians, verse 9 lets us know, but he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. And so, sometimes you doubt salvation. A lot of times when you've been truly saved, and then afterwards, there comes that time where you begin to doubt your salvation. It's because you're not building on these things. You're not adding, allowing these things to be added to your life. And so you begin to doubt your salvation. So if we don't do it, we'll fail as a Christian. And then verses, uh, verse 10 lets us know, but if we do these things, we can live a Christian life. Will we have sin? Oh, daily. But will we fail as a Christian? He says, you'll never fail as a Christian. If you'll do these things daily in your life. Uh, verses 11 through 15 will emphasize that you're going to be put in remembrance of this. Now, the Apostle Peter, he messed up several times in his life, and yet God used him in a mighty way. So you don't quit. Oh, I messed up. I might as well quit, give up. It's no sense anymore. I just didn't make it. No, never give up. He forgives, he cleanses, and, and a righteous man falling seven times gets back up again. Okay. So God can use you. And that's what happened with, with, with Peter, and that's what can happen with you and anybody else. So in verses 11 through 15, though, he is putting them in remembrance of these things. And constantly you'll be in, uh, put in remembrance because you've got the Spirit of God. Peter is telling the Holy Spirit wants me to keep you in remembrance of these things. So I'm going to preach what the Spirit of God wants me to do. And you need to have these things in your heart that you keep them in remembrance as well. At the bottom of all of our transgressions is when we begin, begin to become forgetfulness of God's person as well as God's Word. So we must diligently Think on and obey his word. Why? That we might be conformed to the image of his dear son. Okay. That's his desire. Uh, corrupted churches and corrupted Christians should be brought back to a holy consecration by the written word of God. Now, God's given us preachers. He's given us uh, teachers and, and others in our lives that, that can be used of God as a help to us. And, and they are a help because God wouldn't have ordained it if, if it had not been his plan. But you also need to understand another thing in John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Are you walking with God in such a way that his voice is as familiar in your heart 
as your spouse's voice is to your ear. You see, my sheep, he says, hear my voice. It's not an audible voice that we hear coming out. No, it's in our heart. And one thing, the reason you meditate on his word is the Holy Spirit will bring into remembrance all that he has taught us. As you think on his word, then the Holy Spirit begins to speak to your heart through the word of God. You see? And then you begin to know his voice. And as you know the word of God, you can discern when the devil is trying to imitate the voice of God. So as long as we have Bibles, we can continue to grow in the knowledge of God. And that's really a personal responsibility that we each have. To grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as we give heed in walking obedience to his word and will. And also we walk in sweet communion with God. Then we'll live in obedience. But also in great anticipation of the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, at his coming. And that's what we want. Now, keep it in mind. Pastors are provided by God and teachers and so forth are provided by God. But your spiritual growth depends on your own personal walk with God. They can provide you things that help you in that growth. But you've got to eat and exercise the things of God. Eat and exercise in spirit. What he has given. Now we first see here in our text. In verses 16 through 18. The testimony. Some people. Like to speak of the miraculous. This great experience they've had. Oh they go on about that. Well look. He's going to tell them about an experience. They had as apostles. Peter along with James and John. Although their names aren't mentioned here. He says, we haven't followed cunningly devised fables. The word fables comes from the Greek word mythos, from which we get our word mythology. And so he said, we're not just giving you myths. We're not giving you made-up stories. This is not something that was fabricated in our mind. We're not giving you some, some truth mixed in with reasoning and logic of the world. He said, that's not what we're doing. It's not something, though, when he says cuttingly devised fables. It's not, not something necessarily false. It may tell a little boy, uh, tell a story like the little boy that cried wolf all the time. We heard that nursery rhyme, that nursery story coming up. Uh, the little boy that ca- cried wolf and he ended up getting eaten by a wolf because nobody believed him. Well, there was a story. It was a made up story, but it had a truth in it. And it was a good truth for kids to learn from, no doubt. But what they have is not a made-up story. What we're saying here is they followed these things to show they gave them 100% of the pure and absolute truth from the mouth of God. That's why His Word is without error. It is unadulterated having no contradiction within it. It is the word of God and his doctrine. 
which gives all the instruction of this chapter, not fables, okay? Why? Because he's preparing you for the spiritual warfare in chapters 2 and 3. But why does he give it? They gave unto them the truth of the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He came, he rose from the dead, and he conquered all that conquered us. And he points out that they, Peter, John, and James, were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And that is why, and here's why he's telling them about it. So he's starting to lay it out in some detail here in verses 17 and 18. Let's look at those verses again. For we received of God the Father honor and glory. For he received, shall I say, of God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice, which came from heaven, we heard. And when we were with him in the holy mount, Here's the experience that they had. This this experience in that holy mount took place before the cross and the resurrection. But that experience told them that the one that was there with them was the Lord Jesus Christ. He was indeed the Son of God. No doubt about it. He was God come in the flesh. After seeing this, there was no doubt in their mind. You see, this is the Mount of Transfiguration. Now they're seeing Emmanuel, God with us, as the word is interpreted. And as eyewitnesses of the majesty, they're telling him all about it. It, it, He lays it out for them by detail. Why? Because... The voice at the transfiguration, the Mount Transfiguration, was the voice of the Father in heaven. They actually did hear it audibly. He actually spoke. <clears throat> but understand, <clears throat> transfiguration was that they were actually transfigured. The, the, the clothing in them, themselves became white and glistering. As no man, no fuller could whiten it. It was something else. It was something that they had not beheld before. Now, look, most of us don't want to remember our failures. We just don't get up and brag about how we failed. You know, a kid comes home, I made straight A's. Yeah, great. Another one comes home, hey, one D and four F's. You know, for some reason or another, it doesn't get the same reaction, all right? It does get a reaction, by the way. <laughs> I found out the hard way. One uh, D and four F's. Dad said I was concentrating too much on one subject. But again, the one that's writing here, 
is the Apostle Peter. And he's writing down, not his words, he's writing down the words the Holy Ghost would have him to write. There's a sense in which Peter, in this experience, gets rebuked. Do you think Peter really wanted to write about himself getting rebuked? It was great to say, hey, I was there, but do I have to add that? Oh, yes, it was so important that he added that. Very important. Peter had opened his mouth. But on the other hand, who could blame him? He's seeing Moses and Elijah. I mean, these guys lived hundreds of years earlier. Up to 1,500 years earlier for Moses. Goodness, up to 800 years for Elijah. I mean, these guys lived hundreds of years earlier. Now they are there. They are talking. They are clearly seen and understood. They appear in glory. Their clothing is also white. It's also glistening. And they are there talking. And what's interesting to me is they're clearly known by Peter, John, and James. I mean, they didn't have pictures hanging up in the temple that said, Peter, he was here from. No, didn't have that at all. They didn't have pictures. There's no picture of Peter. I mean, no picture of, uh, well, there's none of Peter either. There's not really any of Jesus, but uh, some some guys in the middle ages there, dark ages, tried to draw some pictures of their own ideas. All of a sudden, Jesus is not a Jew. He's, <laughs> he's a Caucasian, you know. He's something else. But understand, these guys don't have name tags on. And the Spirit of God makes all three of these guys immediately know This is actually Moses and Elijah. And Peter's at an area where he just doesn't know what to say, but so he speaks up, and when he speaks up, he ends up saying the wrong thing. Yet, it was probably good that he got to see this, and it is good because God is able to use it. And isn't it interesting? That when Moses and Elijah, we're not told the context of the, the whole conversation, but we are, we are told is the context. They're going to speak to Jesus Christ about his coming death at Jerusalem. I think that was very important to Moses and Elijah. These guys had lived hundreds of years earlier. Now they're talking, and they're talking with the one who is coming, has come there, just going to go to a cross. They knew that he was God in heaven, that he was spirit, that he left that and took on human flesh along with a human spirit. But what they really know, and the way they lived their lifetime, was that this one that came was going to determine the eternal destiny of each of them. And the disciples need to know that too. That's why Peter had to be corrected so quickly. 
These guys, Moses, Moses and Elijah. This is great. Not because of the experience. It's great because Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem very shortly and pay the penalty for their sins from hundreds of years ago, guaranteeing their eternal life. They had faith looking ahead. We have faith looking back. But it all centers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they talk of the cross and what's going to be accomplished at Jerusalem. Now here these men are, they're in white garments, white and glistering. Again, I'm not too sure about what all that means. They that uh, turn many to righteousness shall shine as the stars forever. That's the idea of glory, great glory, great shining. I'm not sure what that's like. But what I find is interesting is this. John, who was also there, John, who witnessed Moses and Elijah also in this white glistering uh, garments and Jesus, and seeing that whiter than any fuller could white them, and seeing all that go on twice in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, I believe it is, and chapter 22 is the other time, we are told that an angel of God is with him, showing him all these things of eternity in heaven, the greatness, the glory of that wonderful city of God. As they see all of that, John bows down to worship this angel, and the angel then identifies himself. See, the word angel means messenger. In this time, it wasn't a spirit angel like we think of a spirit angel. He says, don't bow down and worship me. I am of thy brethren, the prophets. Worship God. He what had been a human that had walked on this earth, and now he's seeing that guy in his glorified body in eternity, but that glorified body was so great that John started to bow down and worship it, even though back there they were talking about making three temples so that they could bow down and worship them. You see, here we have a great thing that you and I are looking forward to if we're saved. Not just a new body, but fashioned like unto his glorious body. Oh, what glory when we see our Savior's face. Yes, they talked to him of the cross. But when Peter makes his statement, let's make three tabernacles. The father jumps in immediately and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And they three faint. A voice had the power in it, but they said, Peter, you've done the wrong thing. But what they're also saying when he says, this is my son, he used the Greek word huios, which means my actual seed. I placed that seed inside of Mary by the Spirit of God to place it in her. I'm not talking about a sexual thing. And that virgin conceived. 
And that holy thing that was born of her was called the Son of God, and thus it fulfilled what the disciples had heard two or three years earlier. John the Baptist looking down, seeing Jesus coming, and said, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Wow. Now they're experiencing it for real. They're seeing it for real. Oh, what an experience they had. It's Peter's failure. But really, that's not the emphasis here. The emphasis is to exalt Jesus Christ. Jesus paid for everyone who has failed. We read in John chapter, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, for he is the propitiation, the entire payment for all sin for all time. He is the propitiation for our sins, but not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Wow. That knocks out Calvinism in one punch. Knocks it cold. Peter said, three tabernacles. But oh, he learned something that was so much better than what he thought he was seeing. They saw the glory of God. They saw what they had ahead for themselves. And this is why it's recorded. Jesus is Emmanuel. But those that don't believe that God, that he was God come in the flesh, if any man confess not that he is the Christ, is none of his, 1 John 4, 3 tells us. It's important to believe that. So yes, they had the word of God. They had the testimony. They had this experience. But you know what? Verses 19 through 21 and we also have a more sure word of prophecy. Therefore, uh, whereunto we, uh, you do well, that you take heed unto this as a light that shineth in a dark place till the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. You see, better than their experience. Now, you got to admit, that was an experience. To hear the very voice of God, see these guys that lived hundreds of years ago, see those garments, see everything. I mean, that was an experience. But he's letting them know more important than this is the word of God. And it's called a sure word. That word sure is defined in the Greek application as confirmed and well-established. We're being told that the word of God is even greater than the testimony of those witnesses. What they saw is more important. That's why in Psalms 138, he says he's exalted his word even above his name. That's why in Psalms 12, 6 and 7, that he's preserved his word from this generation forever. Uh, generations are on earth. His word was preserved word for word on earth. Every word of God is pure, we're told. We're born again, 1 Peter 1, 23, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. In John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus in his high priestly prayer says, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> in his high priestly prayer says, 
Sanctify them. Set them apart for holy use. Sanctify them through thy truth. Now, if you have a doubt as to what that truth is, he says, thy word is truth. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Through the word of God, you see Jesus and you see the way of salvation. So in verse 20, again, he said there, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation. You see, only holy men of God were allowed to write each word down as the Spirit of God breathed it out to them. It was not their words. It was God's word. It was the Spirit of God's word. And those are the words that he's, he has preserved. But it is our, <clears throat> it is our guide and it's our source. It is the point of reconciliation for all decisions for my life, for my life as far as God's will is for my life, as well as for my day-to-day life. It's the final point of authority. And so, as we look at something like that, when you hear people say, well, I have a hard time with the Bible, so there are so many contradictions in it. You know what that means? That means they lack the understanding to understand that there are no contradictions that they are misunderstanding what the Bible says, not that the Bible is contradicting itself. My friend, I can tell you that there are no contradictions in the Word of God. Satan knows that. That's why he's coming up with a whole bunch of new translations so that you will follow one of those and get away from the true Word of God. So in verse 21, holy men of God, spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. It wasn't their words, but they had to be holy. They had to be holy in order to write down the mind of God. They had to be holy so that God could trust him to write exactly every word that he was breathing out to them. There were smarter men than those that were used to write these words down in the Bible. But they weren't holy men. Therefore, they could not be trusted. The word of God is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and the joints and marrows. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You see, ours is to trust the word of God. Here's why he's giving us this first chapter is to prepare us for what's coming. What's coming from the world's side, the world's attacks, is not good. It's not good. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So, understand that all this preparation, all this boot camp, all this preparation is for each of us individually that are saved. But if you're not saved, you better go back to step one. Faith in the work that Jesus Christ accomplished. Do you think that God, all holy, exalted, sitting on the throne in heaven, the angels, the seraphims, and the seraphims, and the others that would surround his throne, 
They would bow down and say, holy, 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 day after day after day. And the very great thing that they would like to do is to carry out anything he would command. To leave all of that. And to take on human flesh. And to be hated and rejected of man. But he loved you so much, he did that. If he paid your penalty, it's buried and rose from the dead. And he did. But you don't receive it. Don't think you're going to get the judgment and he's going to change his mind. One second after death, you're in eternity and you may want to get saved more than anyone has ever wanted to get saved at that point. But it's too late. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Do you know, are you 100% sure, if you died today, that heaven is your home? Let's bow our heads, please.